Genesis chapter 25 this evening. I have a few more. Anybody need one? Genesis chapter 25. In October of 2008, an owner of a business in England, a man by the name of Simon Creamer, realized that one of his former staff members by the name of Mark Gilbert had written himself a company check in the amount that's equivalent in our country to $1,350, and then he cashed it. Well, the owner, Kramer, was infuriated when he found out about his former employee. And he made a public spectacle of this man. He took him down the street, walked him to the police station with a sign on him, that said, "Uh, Thief, I stole $1,350 and am on my way to the police station. When he got to the station, the uh, criminal, Gilbert, confessed to the crime. And the cops let him off with a warning. But Kramer wasn't so lucky, the owner. He was charged with forced imprisonment. And the charges were dismissed in 2008 and in December when, he, when it was brought before the court. But that didn't stop the thief from suing him for wrongful, uh, you know, wrongful damages. And he ended up winning. Gilbert won $8,000 in compensation for being oppressed or, or wrongly treated and $13,000 for court costs. So in addition to the $1,350 check, he also was received another $20,000. Now, we may debate over the injustice that Kramer uh, received, that he shouldn't have been the victim. He shouldn't have had to pay out more money. We may debate over that. But, but the point I'm trying to make is we get ourselves into trouble many times when we take the law into our own hands. And the only do, thing we we do when we do take the law into our hands is we put ourselves in more of a bind than we would have been if the law would have just been carried out on its own. When it comes to the spiritual life, we may not like the way that the judge of all the earth treats us or treats the people around us. And so sometimes we like to take the position of God in our lives and and enforce things on other people. that This is wrong of you and I'm going to to make you see. And sometimes we just need to sit back and let God take care of it. That we have to recognize that God is the one who distributes sentencing as He pleases. And our responsibility many times, obviously He uses us in that sentencing often, but but many times our responsibility is to just trust Him. That God, You are the one in charge and You're the one that, that has to lead. We're going to acknowledge You in all of Your ways. We're not going to take the law into our own hands. And this is really one example that we see in Scripture here with Jacob in this passage, chapter 25, verses 19 to 34, that he takes the law, in a sense, into his own hands by not sitting back and allowing God and trusting God and expecting God to work, um, but but taking it into his own hands and, and trying to take this birthright from his brother. Verse 19, uh, we'll begin reading. Now these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she, so she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. 
Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So to his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. When the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Now, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, First, sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I am about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, First, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The faithful person must acknowledge God in the circumstances of life. We really have four examples, uh, some of them positive, some of them negative, of, of what a faithful person ought to look, look like. And what we need to see from this passage is what I think the point of the passage is that a faithful person acknowledges God in the circumstances of life. We'll see both Isaac and, and uh, Rebekah both acknowledge God in the circumstances of life, but then both Esau and Jacob not acknowledge God. And so, uh, so let's begin with verses 19 through 26 by seeing the the faithful person acknowledges God in the circumstances of life, that God sovereignly provides the recipient of the promises. You see, these promises had been given to Isaac's father, Abraham, but it would take place through Isaac's choice son, not Ishmael, not the other ones that came through Keturah, but, but through Isaac, through the son that came through Sarah. God sovereignly provides the recipient's of the promise. And as I noted last week, the, the passage, this passage starts out with, now these are the records of the generations of Isaac. We've seen this often in this passage. It seems this is how Moses has broken up the entire book. He begins in chapter 2, verse 4, by saying that these are the records of the creation. And then chapter 5, verse 1, these are the records of the generations of Adam. And then verse, chapter 6, verse 9, these are the records of the generations of Noah, Noah's son, Terah, which is Abraham's father, then Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. That's how the book is broken up. We've come to the point where we are seeing the generations of Isaac. Now what we're going to see over the next 11 or 12 chapters is not so much the stories about Isaac, but really about Isaac's son, Jacob. And that's very similar to the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, it's talking about the records of the generations of Jacob, but it actually talks about primarily about Joseph, his son. And, uh, and so this is, what, um, this is how Moses helps to break this down. The story begins in verse 20. Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah. So this was about three years after his mom died. You remember um, we, we saw that in chapter 24. And this is about 35 years before his dad died. We read about the, the passing of his dad at the beginning of chapter 25. And, uh, and so Isaac is married, is married to Rebekah. But for the first 19 years of their, married, of their marriage, Rebekah was barren. Look at verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. So for, for 19 years, she was not able to give birth. You would expect that if God had passed down the promises from Abraham to Isaac, that, that the struggles for children were going to be over. That if God was going to bless Abraham through his descendants, then, then it would be pretty quickly after Isaac and Rebekah are married that, that Rebekah is pregnant. And she's able to give birth to a son, but no. For 19 years, she is barren. And so we see that the struggles, even though they have the promises of God, the struggles are still there. And uh, this may have been a very significant struggle in the mind of Isaac. His older brother, Ishmael, was 13 years older than him. 
And, and we read last week in verses 12 through 18 that he had 12 sons. And those sons could have all been born by now, by the time that he finally is able to, uh, he and Rebecca are finally able to, to bear a son. And so Isaac prays. Isaac prays to God on behalf of his wife. He recognizes that ultimately it's God who brings the blessing. God who brings the children. Now, I, I think that is very interesting to note because Isaac had already had the promise. He already knew what was going to happen. That God was going to bless him by providing children for him. Or at least a child, a male child, to pass on the family line to to, to spread out and, and, and multiply the descendants of Abraham. Isaac knew that, and yet he still prayed. And this is important for us because we know of things that God, God is going to do in our lives, but we still need to pray for them. God expects us to pray. He wants us to pray. He wants to work through our prayers to accomplish His purposes. That is how God works. Paul talks about this in the New Testament when he says that that when the prayers of more and more people are being raised up to God, then when God answers those things, then more and more thanksgiving are given to God. That's where God gets the glory, when we're praying to Him and seeing Him respond. So God provides the recipient of the promises through Isaac and Rebekah. Next, God chooses the recipient of the promise by sovereign election. That's what verses 22 and 23 are about. It seems to be more about a struggle, but I think what we need to to recognize here is that it's more about God's choice of one over the other. Verse 22. Uh, Well, let's read the end of verse 21 because we didn't finish there. Uh, And the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. So after 19 years, she finally conceives, and in the 20th year of their marriage, she gives birth. Verse 22, But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples will be separated from your body, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. God chooses the recipients of His promise by sovereign election. Verse 22 is about the struggle. This really is what the next ten chapters are going to be about. The struggle between Jacob and Esau. That Esau is this, this, uh, this boisterous, loud, um, hunt, hunter type of a guy. And Jacob's kind of a quiet, soft, laid-back, uh, uh, soft-spoken type of guy. And they will have this struggle. You remember when um, Jacob separates himself from Esau, he's afraid that he's going to actually have to come and meet him. And if you remember the actual uh, reconciliation that comes about after several years of being apart, Jacob, uh, he, he brings all of these caravans of people in front of him or sends them in front of him so that they provide and pour out all these gifts for Esau before Jacob actually gets there. By that time, Esau has already said, listen, you know, th- those types of things are behind us. Let's, let's move on. But this is not just a struggle that will end or or continue throughout their lifetime. This is a struggle that will last for generations to come. That Israel would be an enemy of Edom. Jacob's name would be changed to Israel and Esau's uh, land was was Edom as we see in this passage. So this is the struggle that's going on. But this struggle began in the womb. And this was not just a few little kicks here and there. How cute. Seems like, you know, these, these children are really kicking pretty hard. No, this was this word that's translated struggle here, there in verse 22, but the children struggled, that word there, is translated elsewhere as crushed or oppressed. In Judges chapter 9, it's used of Abimelech, uh, of his skull being crushed, Okay, that it's struggling by a millstone. Okay, so that's not a pretty picture. This is not a... a uh, cutesy type of um, pregnancy that's going on for Rebecca. This is a serious, this is a serious problem, and so she prays to the Lord again. We see her crying out to God on behalf of herself in this this struggle, and that's why she asks this question at the end of verse 22. She says, "If it is so, why then am I this way?" The idea there is, why is this pregnancy so hard? If I'm going to be the mother 
of these descendants who will receive this promise, why is it so difficult? Why is this pregnancy so hard? I mean, I thought this pregnancy would be a good thing and full of blessings, but why do I seem to be so devoid of your favor? I think that's the idea there. But we have to credit Rebecca because she prays to God and God desires to hear her pray. God desires to hear us pray. And in fact, He provides an answer in verse 23. This is the first that she probably knew that there were twins within her. The ultrasound technician must have missed it or something, but um, God tells her specifically that, uh, that you are going to have, you actually have two nations struggling inside of you. And um, that, that two tribes will come from your womb, two people groups. And notice towards the end of the verse of verse 23, and one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. This is where we see God's sovereign election that God chooses on the basis of His own free will. One of the tribes has an ancestor who is older and stronger, which would seem to indicate the one whom God chooses, older and stronger. That would be the natural thing to do. But God doesn't choose the older and stronger here in this case. He chooses the younger and the weaker. You see, under normal circumstances in those days, the younger child would serve the older child. The older child would receive all the blessing, the inheritance, the double portion of blessing. But here, God's saying, no, actually the younger one is the one I've chosen. So that at the end of the day, Jacob or any chosen person of God cannot attribute his success to his position, his ability, the natural order that I came first. He can't attribute it to that because he wasn't. He can't attribute it to his own human will. The only thing he can contribute, the favor that he receives, is what? God's choice. God chose me for some reason. That's all Jacob can say. And you see how that can bring great glory to God. And I think the same thing is true for us. At the end of the day, we can't praise ourselves because of our own salvation. All we can say is, why me? Of all other people, why me? Why did you choose me, God? And, uh, and God does this often. He doesn't always do this, chooses the younger over the older, but He often does this. You see this throughout Genesis Several examples. Abel is chosen over Cain. Shem is chosen over Japheth, who is the oldest. Isaac is chosen over Ishmael. Jacob, obviously, over Esau. And then Judah and Joseph are chosen over Reuben. And we'll talk about how they, there's two chosen there uh, in, in the family of Jacob. All right, so God chooses. God is the one who, who provides or shows His favor to them through His sovereign election. Next point we need to see is uh, see there on your handout the faithful acknowledge the outworking of the sovereign plan. The faithful acknowledge the outworking of the sovereign plan. We see their naming of these two children here in verses 24 through 26. They're born here. Esau is named because of his looks. Jacob is named because of his activity. Okay. Esau is named because he is red and hairy as a child, as a baby, and. Uh, he would later settle in Edom, which also means hairy. And so this would be the nation that would struggle against Israel. So Edom, Esau is named for his looks. Jacob is named for his activity. Notice what uh, verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, according to his looks. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. That's how I know that she was barren for 19 years, because when they were married, they were uh, he was 40 years old, and she doesn't give birth until he's 60. But what I want to show you here in verse 26 is that Jacob is named for his activity, not for his looks, but that he's hanging on to the heel of Esau. Now, the name Jacob later came to be uh, synonymous with deceiver. 
that he is a deceptive type of person. And, and we'll see several examples of that as we go here through Genesis. However, when Isaac and Rebekah first gave that name to him, that wasn't what they had in mind. In fact, it was an affectionate name that they gave to him for his activity, heel grabber. That's what the name really means. He, that he came on the heels of his brother Esau. Probably had the idea of protection. And, uh, and even though these names were in keeping with Esau's uh, appearance and Jacob's activity, they would soon uh, anticipate the nature and the activity of the two men. That Esau was a, would grow to be a rugged, hairy, outdoorsman, hunter, favored by his father, and Jacob would be a plain tent dweller, we'll see in this passage, peaceful, favored by his mother. So the faithful acknowledges God in, their, in the circumstances of life. We see that two times. First with Isaac praying to God because his wife is barren. And then Rebekah, his wife, praying to God because of the struggle that's within her. But in that, we also see the sovereign election of God. The next thing that we see in verses 27 through 34 is that the wicked gives up eternal treasure for temporal pleasure. The wicked person gives up eternal treasure to satisfy immediate appetites. And that really is the focus of this passage. We tend to focus, when we look at this passage, we tend to focus on the deception of Jacob. I mean, what a, what a character, right? Why would he do such a thing? But actually the focus of the text is on Esau. Notice the very last phrase of the, of the chapter. It doesn't say, Thus, Jacob deceived his brother to get the birthright, does it? What does it say? Thus, Esau despised his birthright. In other words, what Moses is saying here is, let me give you a summary of this whole passage, verses 27 to 34. Esau gave up his birthright. And that's why the point here on your outline is the wicked gives up eternal treasure for temporal pleasure. The story is not really about Jacob. The story is about Esau. Notice verse 27 that, uh, verses 27 and 28 that the wicked person lives a life of worldly freedom. He lives a life of worldly freedom. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Jacob, excuse me, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. We see a contrast here between the two men who are now grown. Esau is literally translated a cunning hunter. Okay, it says they're skillful hunter. It literally could be translated cunning hunter, a man of the field. He was an aggressive man. He was boisterous, wild, free, rough, not under the yoke of, of someone else's rule. While Jacob, verse 28, was more even tempered. He was a man of the tents. Notice verse 28. Uh, end of verse 27. And Jacob was a peaceful man living in the tents. And then it tells, uh, in verse 28, who favors them. The idea of him being uh, peaceful there is the idea of even-tempered, that he was calm, settled, quiet, that, that the fact that he lived among the tents meant that he dwelt with people and interacted with people, was able to, to, uh, to uh, have thoughtful conversations, he was civilized, in other words. So you picture two very different men. Esau is a, is a wild, free, boisterous, outgoing type or, or um, independent type person. And Jacob is more a civilized man. I think the point of the contrast here is to lay the foundation for the transaction. The transaction of the birthright that Esau would likely have gotten the birthright except for the fact that, that, uh, that he didn't want it. He was living freely. He loved the risk of the hunt. While Jacob is, is more skillful and settled, waiting for the perfect time, in a sense, he, Jacob becomes the hunter here, getting the birthright from his brother. And when we look at these characters just from a, a natural perspective, one is more appealing to the other. And this, this, this is revealed in verse 28 here where we see that Esau, excuse me, Isaac uh, favors Esau over Jacob. And I think this reveals a weakness in Isaac. 
we'll find out later that uh, Esau marries two Hittite women, along with several other women that he'll, he'll come to marry later on in life. And even though he knows this, even though Isaac, his father, knows this, that th- this actually troubles them. This troubles both Isaac and Rebekah that, that Esau would marry these wicked women. And yet still at the end of his life, what does Isaac do? Chapter 26. Right? Doesn't he, or excuse me, chapter 27. Doesn't he want to give the, the blessing to Esau? And yet he should have recognized that Esau was not the right choice. And so this, I think, reveals a weakness in Isaac. We'll come back to this when we get to chapter 27. Rebecca was more concerned about what she had heard from God. Remember what God said to her in verse 23 at the end? The older will serve the younger. She was wanting to make sure that Jacob actually received the birthright, the blessing. Isaac was more concerned about his own natural senses. What, what was more appealing to him? He had the, he had the love of the, the hunt. and the, He loved to, 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 um, to be out in the field and so on, as verse 28 tells us. Here we see in verses 29-33 that the wicked person acts on impulse to satisfy immediate appetites. The wicked acts on impulse to satisfy immediate appetites. That he is a person of... He is a victim of personal appetites. Look at verse 29. When Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there, for I am famished. Therefore his name was called Edom. Here we see Esau, the hunter, being hunted by Jacob. That Jacob has the perfect trap for this hunter. And it is the stew when he comes in from the field. Uh, It seems coincidental that he just happened to have stew prepared when Esau came in from the field, but perhaps Jacob had set this trap. That over time he had recognized that Esau would often come in hungry and and would ask for food and, and so on. And finally Jacob decides, you know what, I'm going to use this to get something that would be of value to me. Notice what... Notice that Esau is a man of this victim of appetites in verse 29. At the end, it says, "Please let me have a swallow of that red stuff there." And I think that's a great translation that the New American Standard gives there because he is very impulsive there. It's, he doesn't he doesn't give a name to what's being cooked there. He just says, "Give me some of that red stuff," or as one commentator says, "Red stuff, red stuff." Feed me like a barbarian. This is Esau. He's impulsive. He doesn't think ahead. So, because he is so impulsive, because he's fed by his own personal, or he's led by his own personal appetites, he gives up things of lasting value. We see that in verses 31 through 33. He gives up lasting spiritual value in order to satisfy his impulses. Verse 31, But Jacob said, First sell me your birthright. Esau said, Behold, I'm about to die. So what use then is the birthright to me? In other words, it's of no value to me, Jacob. You can have it. I just want my belly filled. Give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob wisely goes after the birthright, not in the proper way, but he all, he wants something of spiritual value. And this is something to be commended. He doesn't go about it the right way. Uh, we'll talk about this later. But, um, but he does seek what is of greater value. Esau doesn't. He sets that aside to satisfy his own appetite. Now, why did Jacob want the birthright? What is the birthright anyway? Because at the end of... Isaac's life. I've already mentioned in chapter 27 that Isaac's going to give a blessing. So what's the difference between a birthright and a blessing? In order to answer that question, we need to go to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Because if Jacob... Okay, if we're thinking in Genesis chapter 25, and Jacob gets the birthright, he, he, I, Esau actually swears to him that he'll get the birthright... Why does Isaac, why does Jacob have to deceive a second time in order to get the blessing? 
So they must be two different things. First Chronicles chapter five. Verse one. Now the sons of Reuben, notice the firstborn of Israel or Jacob. Okay, so Reuben's the firstborn. For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So he has not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Okay, so when we're talking about Jacob's seven or twelve sons. Who was supposed to get the birthright, according to verse 1? Reuben, the oldest, right? But who did get the birthright? Joseph. Okay, now look at verse 2. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader. What do you think that's referring to? Christ. Whose line did Christ come through? Did he come through Reuben? That's what we would expect. The oldest. He came through Judah. He didn't come through Joseph's line. He came through Judah. So actually there's a, two types of blessings that children would receive, that sons would receive during this age. The birthright and the blessing. And the birthright seems to be a double portion of, a double portion of the material inheritance that the father gives away. You remember what happens when Jacob finally... Uh, blesses Joseph. He gives him a double portion. How does he do that? By giving it to his two sons, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. And uh, even there, the younger is chosen over the older. But the point is that Joseph gets a double portion of the blessing. That's the birthright. Okay. The other blessing that comes, and this is the blessing that happens at the end of Isaac's life. When Isaac is there, he, his eyes are are shot basically... And Jacob comes in with all this uh, wool on his arms to try to pretend he is Esau and with the smell of the field and with the soup and everything. And, uh, and Isaac gives the blessing to Jacob. That's what Judah would have gotten, the blessing. That is, that, it would, that, that he would be the one who had the leader come through him, the, the, the Savior. So this had more to do, the blessing that is, had more to do with the continuance of the messianic line or the governmental power of rule. That's Judah. That's Jacob. Now, for Jacob, he got both of them. He got both the birthright, the double portion of material blessing, and the blessing. The messianic line would go through him instead of Esau. Now, turn back to Genesis chapter 25. Does that make sense? How There's two sorts of blessings there and why Jacob deceived twice in order to get these two things away from Esau, who was set to receive them on the basis of his natural order. Jacob wanted something of lasting spiritual value, while Esau was living to satisfy his immediate appetites. Now, the way that Jacob went about getting that birthright was clearly wrong. But that doesn't take away from the fact that he wanted what was better. He wanted the, the thing that was going to be of lasting spiritual value while Esau wanted something that would, would please his appetites now. The way that Jacob should have responded is he should have trusted God. Okay? Instead, he takes the law into his own hands and, and he doesn't trust God. He's like, I, I'm going to get it myself. And he doesn't learn even at the end of his life. His mother is in on the, the crime at the end as well. Notice in verse 32, Esau's raw inhibitions. I'm about to die, so what use is it to me? In other words, I'm going to give up what is of lasting value if only I can be satisfied now. It's like a child who doesn't understand the value of what he has. Hey, maybe he has a $100 bill in his hand. He's happy to give that up for a sucker. He doesn't understand the value. This is Esau. He doesn't understand what is of lasting value. He just wants to be satisfied now. And so Esau happily swears to Jacob through a binding oath. What good is this to me? I don't need this. I need food. That's what I need. Verse 34, we see that the wicked person has no regard for the things of God. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and 
drink and rose and went on, on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. The focus of this passage is on two main doctrines that we're going to see in other parts of Scripture. First, God's choice. God's choice, verses 19-26, through that He is the one who chooses who will be the one who receives favor. And then secondly, the second part of the passage is about man's temporal appetites, verses 27 to 34. So let's take both of those and consider some, some application under both. Turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll look at God's choice here. Because this is a passage that's, Genesis 25 is a passage that's quoted by Paul here in Romans chapter 9. Very important passage to understand that God does as He pleases. God does not choose on the basis of natural order or natural strength, ability, or on, on the goodness of a person. He doesn't look down the quarters of time to see if we're going to be a good person or not. Jacob fell short in all of those areas, and yet God chose him. And I would argue that you and I fall short of God on every level. We don't deserve His grace. God chooses on the basis of His own free will. Look at verse 10. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of Him who calls, it was said to her, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That comes from Malachi. Verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He goes on to say in verses 19 and 20 that how can we as the, the, the clay say to the potter, why have you made me this way? The point is we can't question God and His choice. Why did you choose me over them? Why did you, why did you not choose this family member of mine? And, and you chose that other person who seems so unworthy of your grace. We can't question God. Simply praise Him for His grace that He showed to us. Now, perhaps that idea offends you. That God would choose a person without consulting them or without looking at their behavior. But if that offends you, then you don't understand three things in the Scripture. Number one, you don't understand yourself. You don't fully understand yourself and your own sin. You might think you're better than these these other people, you may think you're better than both Jacob and Esau and that you actually deserve what God gives you, but you don't understand your own sin if you're saying that, if you're questioning God's choice. You see, you and I are no better than Jacob and Esau. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, not even one. None seek after God. That's you. And that's me. Not one at all seeks after God. You see, left to ourselves, we are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, verses 1-3. We are dead in our sins. Apart from God, we are nothing. We deserve His wrath. And those who fail to recognize their own sin never receive grace from God because they don't think they need God's grace. This was the problem of the Pharisees. I'm good enough to get there on my own. And God says, no, you're not. You don't recognize your sin. If you don't recognize that you need a doctor spiritually, you're not going to be healed. I didn't come to heal the... the I didn't come to, to give uh, to life to the healthy. I came to give life to the sick. So you need to recognize your sickness. So I would say if you are offended by God's choice, God's election of His people then you don't understand yourself. Secondly, you don't understand God. 
God does as He pleases. Daniel 4.35 says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? He's God. If you are, are offended at God's choice, God's election of certain people over others without looking at their works, and you don't understand God, because God does as He pleases, Psalm 115, verse 3. And then thirdly, you don't understand grace. You see, if God looked at our behavior and said, mm, yeah, that looks good, do you realize it wouldn't be grace? It wouldn't be grace because it would be merit. We earned God's favor. God looked at us. In fact, in this passage it says, before the children were born... Verse 11, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, God chose them. This is why this passage is so important. We see more of God's choice, God's election. You see, we don't understand grace when we question God's choice because grace that is earned is not grace. Grace is unmerited favor, unearned favor favor. And I would argue from Romans chapter 8 that it is unwanted favor. It's not that just that we can't earn God's favor or that we won't. It's that we don't want to. We don't even want God's help. We are not only unable to do so, but we don't want it. And so we need God's grace. We need God's choice of us. And when He does the work, when He does the choosing, that is grace. God offers it to all. And if we would just come to Him on His terms, then He will give us eternal life. The Scriptures are clear on that. So the first part of the passage in Genesis chapter 25 is about God's choice. And we need to understand that God can choose whom He pleases, not on the basis of us, but on the basis of His own free will. And that highlights His grace. We should praise Him for His grace. But this passage is also about man's temporal appetites. The last section, as I said earlier, is not about Jacob and his deception primarily, but about Esau's foolishness. In fact, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16 calls him godless. Esau was the grandson of Abraham, the great father. And he was on the fast track to to getting long-lasting spiritual blessings both in this life and the life to come. And yet, he gave all of that up to fill up his belly, to satisfy his temporal appetite. That's why the passage ends. Thus, Moses says, Esau despised his birthright. He was foolish. He cared more about himself than about future blessings from God. Now, of course, Jacob is not in the clear. Um, He must have known of the divine promise in verse 23. Rebecca must have told him, we would think, and yet he still seeks to usurp God's desire to always do right because he thought he had to do it himself in order to attain supremacy. So he's not in the clear. He shouldn't have done that. He schemed instead of trusted. He deceived when he should have believed. He knew that Esau was wicked. And he knew that he could appeal to his brother's appetites. And so the lesson that we learn from Jacob is to pursue spiritual blessings. And when we do, that's a good thing. Pursue spiritual blessings like Jacob. But but when we do, do it the right way. Do it God's way. Don't take the law into your own hands. Will you trust what God has provided for you? What is it in this life that you are seeking after? The thing that doesn't satisfy. You keep running to the spring of whatever it is for you. Sensuality, money, You keep dipping your cup into the fountain of pleasure or a desire for youthfulness or recreation, vacation, passionate lust. 
And yet every time you take a sip from that cup, you still feel thirsty again. It doesn't satisfy, does it? Well, God has offered something of lasting value, something of which you can drink from, not just in eternity, but now too, and enjoy the lasting pleasure of it. And that is His Son for us, Jesus Christ. If only we knew how great the Messiah is, then we would be satisfied with Him and seek nothing else. It is truly sad to think about what we will give up, like Esau, that is of lasting spiritual value for the sake of our immediate personal appetites. Have you experienced the Lord's goodness for yourself? Have you drunk from the well that never runs dry? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Or perhaps a better way of saying that question, are you continually tasting and seeing that the Lord is good? Is your relationship with Him so vibrant that you can't help but sing out? You can't help but sit at His feet and listen to Him. That all of your life is around trying to get others to see this great Savior? Or are you left, when you drink from the well of the Messiah, are you left unsatisfied? You have to work up a desire to meet Him each day. And to sing about Him. And to talk about Him. And to talk to Him. Do you have to, do you have to force yourself to do it? Does it feel like an obligation to you? Is it a burden to obey Him? Because it shouldn't be. It should be your greatest joy because you understand what He did for you and how with the commands that He gives you, He is protecting you from what would be dangerous to you. From the dangerous passion, the lust-driven, unsatisfying life that is offered by the prince of the power of the air unsatisfied. We are driving down the road of life and the billboards that are there that cry out, try me, drink me, spend time with me, I will satisfy you. They grab our attention spiritually and we get off the exit ramp of where we ought to be going toward life eternal. We get off the exit ramp in order to pursue the things like Esau that will fade away in order to satisfy our immediate appetites. But when we do that, we only find that we're thirsty all over again. Those desires still are there. And the only one who can quench your thirst spiritually is Jesus Christ. Not any of those things that are offered by Satan and his world system. What would it profit you if you were able to drink from the well of this world system, you were able to drink up all the pleasures that Satan has to offer, what would that profit you? If you are able to satisfy some of your urges and yet lose your own soul. If you fail to drink from the Messiah, from His body, hit or eat of His body, as He said in John 6, and drink of His blood. That is, you are enraptured in Him. You're, you're encapsulated in who He is. You desire to be with Him. If you don't drink from that, then you will be thirsty. You will be unsatisfied. You will be frustrated. And the way that you take pleasure in knowing Christ is by getting to know Christ. And so often we expect that there's just going to be some sort of jolt in us that's just going to pick us up off of our bed and, hey, we're going to get down and start praying. And really it comes down to disciplining ourselves for the purpose of godliness, Paul said. I beat my body so that I make it a slave to spiritual things. Because he's desiring what is of greatest value. You see, when we are short-sighted, we're just seeing the things around us like Esau, those are the things we go after. And they don't satisfy, do they? The only thing that satisfies is our Savior and what He has to offer through His Word.
Let's pursue that with all that we have. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the positive and negative examples that we were able to see in this passage this evening. We uh, are less like Isaac and Rebekah in the first part of the passage and more like Esau and Jacob. Not trusting You in the things of life like Jacob and giving up of eternal treasures for temporal pleasures like Esau. Father, we are, are weak and lowly. We deserve Your wrath. We don't deserve to be chosen by You. And yet, You have shown us that we, we are chosen by You because all who, who come to Christ will not be turned away. That He, draw, he, he drew us to Him. And the fact that we were drawn to Him suggests that we have been chosen by You. And so, we praise You for Your grace. We are amazed at it even more when we think of passages like this, that it was not because of our behavior, because of our ability, or because of our natural talents or natural order, but because of Your grace and Your grace alone. Help us to recognize ourselves and see ourselves in a proper light in our sin and what it deserves. Help us to see You clearly, that You do whatever You please. Help us to understand Your grace clearly, that it is unearned. And then help us not to drink from the pleasures of this world, but to, to fix our, our gaze and our attention to feast on Jesus Christ and His Word, to drink from the well that never runs dry, We don't want that just to be a one-time thing when we come to saving knowledge of Christ, but a continual thing because we know that that all who are genuine believers will continue to do that. They will persevere on to the end. They will drink from that well. And we want to be found faithful. Warn us and turn us from where we are failing You. Encourage us where we are obeying You. Help us to do more for You. To resolve to to give ourselves even more fully to You. Fully consecrated. And we pray for each person here that, that You would encourage them in this way. Strengthen their faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.